0: well good morning everybody i'm so glad to be here with each one of you um, my name is amy foster and it's just one of the great privileges of my life to be here at women in the word and to be part of the teaching team so thank you for being here today and uh, welcome to the west campus those of you who are watching out there i don't know if any of you noticed but in, in the last i don't know 20 or 30 years there's been a new term that's sort of been introduced into our culture and it's widely understood and and the term is dysfunctional family. You all know what that means, right? <laughs> well, here's the curious thing to me. Uh, before 20 or 30 years ago, there was no word to describe that. And that's curious because we know dysfunctional families have been around for a long time. And if you don't believe me, just read your Old Testament. We've got some really great examples there, um, setting the bar pretty low for dysfunctional families. <laughs> Dysfunctional families are characterized by conflict, by unhealthy patterns, by discord, by an inability to grow and mature. And so we all know in this um, hard fallen world that can include families with addiction or abuse or profound mental illness, or outrageously poor parenting. And in short, you could summarize it as dysfunctional families lack unity, and they lack love, and they lack peace, don't they? Well, in Ephesians, Paul is describing the great mystery of God that is finally being revealed. And the mystery is God has created a new family, and it's a functional family. It's the family of God. And this is a new thing at this time because no longer will God interact with and express himself through one nation, the nation of Israel. Now God will interact with and express himself through the family of God. And that's us. And the beauty is... Um, we are all united together in this family. It doesn't matter that um, our genetics are not connected to each other or our nationality is not connected. What connects us is that we all believe in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So God takes all of us with our differences and he makes us one. He makes us one in Christ. He makes us one in a new family. And it's not a dysfunctional family Praise the Lord. It's not a perfect family either, but it is a functional family. All through Ephesians, Paul is going to use different terms to describe this family. He's going to call us the body of Christ, the family of God. He's going to call us a building with Jesus as the cornerstone or a building that's built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, and he's going to call us the church. And all those things describe us and it is a brand new thing. Paul spends the first three chapters in Ephesians really helping the new believers understand the character of this new thing. The character and identity of the church or the family of God. And he's telling them and he's telling us all we need to know because it's our heritage and it's our legacy. That's what he does in the first three chapters and you may remember he begins by telling us we have new possessions. In this family we are wealthy and we are rich and he tells us we have all we will ever need to live a spiritual and a godly life. We have all we need to sustain our life with him. He also tells us in this new family we have a new position and you remember this position is in Christ In Christ, we've been rescued from the road that takes us to destruction and the road that takes us to death and despair. And because of the work of Jesus, we've been forgiven. We've been healed. We've been restored. We have been made spiritually alive. And now we are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we have peace. First, we have peace with God. And then we have peace with each other. That's what that new position brings to each of us. And then next he tells us that we have a new person, a new purpose. And he says, if every one of us who's believed in Jesus Christ, we have been knit together in this church. We've been knit together into this family because of our faith. And he reminds us the church is not a building. The church is an organism. It's living and it's breathing. And the church exists to display God to the world, to show his love and his mercy and his wisdom and his grace. The church is God's functional family. And because it's his family, it's full of unity and peace and love." Now Paul changes after these first three chapters where he's really describing the character and the identity of the church. He moves to the practical application. He helps us understand what our behavior should look like as a member of this new family. He tells us um, he moves from our character as a member of the church to our conduct, our individual conduct as a member in the church. So as we have this conversation today, I just want to remind you when I say church, I'm not talking about Christ Chapel and I'm not talking about buildings with Christ. On their roof. I'm talking about all of us together. I'm talking about the people of God who have believed in the work of Jesus Christ, and because of that, we're all submitting to Christ as our Savior and our ruler. That's the universal church, and we are all members of that together. Well, in ancient times uh, and all through uh, the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, you are probably familiar with this truth. Most people did not know how to read. Most people did not have Bibles. And these great truths of God, it was difficult to communicate those things. So art... Art and architecture were frequently used to communicate truths about God. And that's why some of these cathedrals in other parts of the world are so beautiful and they're so theologically rich because you don't have to hear a sermon preached. You can look at the art and you can look at the architecture and learn biblical truths. Um, We lost a lot of that during the Reformation, but some of it still remains. And some churches still use the architecture of the church to communicate significant truths. And I want to encourage you that you're sitting in the sanctuary here at Christ Chapel today. There's some architecture here that communicates significant truths about the church. So if you're sitting in the sanctuary, I want you to just look up at the ceiling. And everybody else, I want you to look at the slide. We've got some pictures here so you can see our ceiling. All right, look closely at the shape. Look closely at, at the material and at the horizontal lines on the sides. You might recognize this, this looks like something you've seen somewhere before. And let's flip to that second slide. We actually repeat this roof line several places here in, at Christ Chapel. And I'm going to give you a hint. Look closely at that roof. And the, the roof styled like this usually covers the part of the church called the nave, And that's the part where all the congregation sits together. And that word nave, it has the same root word where we get the word navy. Okay, it looks like something, doesn't it? Okay, I'm going to give you another hint. Um, Look closely there. Look at the construction, those horizontal boards that that are running sideways there. That might look like something. When we finish out a building or a house like this today, we call it shiplap. All right. Nave, navy, shiplap. What's the visual imagery there? It looks like a boat. It looks just like a boat, but from what perspective? It's what you see when you look at a boat when you're on the inside of the boat. It's the perspective from being inside the hull of a boat. And so here's what you need to know. A boat was an early Christian symbol that, re- that symbolized the church The same way the ichthus or the fish was a symbol representing individual Christians, a boat represented the church. And so in this architecture, we have a visual reminder of the character of the church. And here's the reminder, Christ's body, Christ's church, all of us assembled together together being carried through the seas of life, all of us assembled together, escaping the judgment of God's wrath for sin, and one day all of us together being delivered on the other side to spend eternity with God in heaven. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of our life as the church. That architecture has been employed for centuries to remind us we are all a part of this great mystery of God, and it's called the church. We have a collective identity in the church, and one thing that Paul makes very clear, and this architecture also makes very clear, ladies, it's not about you. It's about us. It's not a bunch of individual boats out there. It's one boat. And we're all the knave. We're all sitting in this boat together. So we're going to have these reminders all through this lesson here when, when Paul instructs us on how we live out the character of the church. And the truth is it's not about you. It's about us. So Paul begins chapter 4 with the word therefore or then. Whenever he starts that way, we know he's referring back to the things he's already talked about. So he's talking about the first three chapters of Ephesians where he's fully explained the character and the conduct of the new church. That's what he's talking about. So begin reading with me Ephesians 4 verse 1. one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all." So what Paul does right away as he begins describing the conduct of the church, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And I want to let you know, you're going to see this, um, this urging to walk five times in the rest of this book. Five more times he's going to talk about your walk. Your walk describes your daily conduct. It describes your behavior. It's basically how you lead your life. And he says he's urging you to behave in a way that's a credit to what God has done for you. It's a credit to what God has called you to and to walk worthy actually those original words there they they mean to give equal weight to so it's as if you've got a balance and God's calling and your behavior are on that balance and they should have equal weight given to them so we have to think then what is our calling What is it God has asked us to walk worthy of? And our calling is to salvation. Our calling is to this new relationship in harmony with God and this new relationship with each other. From Ephesians 1 verse 4, um, Paul says, And even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So that's our calling. We were called to unity with God and unity with each other. We, are, we were called to live in one body, this church. So he says we are to walk in a manner that is worthy. And we need to stop and pay attention to the word walk there. Ladies, walking is not passive, is it? If I'm laying down in my bed, I'm not walking. If I'm leaning against a wall, I'm not walking. Walking is an activity and we have to remember that. We don't simply understand our new identity and our new position in the church and then take our place and settle down. We actually have to be active. Our life should match the position that God has given us. That will require the activity of walking. And so Paul urges us to walk in unity to maintain this functional family. His first instruction there is maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the word maintain is very important. Maintain means to keep something in good condition, to continue something. And so what we see right here is God isn't asking us to create unity and he's not asking us to create peace because he has already created it for us. He is asking us to take the good thing that he has given us and to maintain it. Ephesians 2.14 on your verse sheet says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace." So our task here is to maintain what Christ has already done for us. And we don't do it passively, but it doesn't actually begin with activity or behavior. It begins with thoughts. It begins in our minds, and he asks us to assume some new attitudes. He begins with humility, and humility doesn't mean thinking nothing of yourself. It just means having a lowliness of mind where you don't think more highly of yourself than others. It's not elevating yourself in that way. So humility is required. Then he also says gentleness, or perhaps your translation used the word meekness. And meekness is a really misunderstood word. People tend to think it means having no power. And it's actually quite the opposite. Meekness is power under control. It's self-controlled power. It's emotions under control. Jesus was described as meek. And in the right moment, Jesus unleashed amazing power. Moses is described as meek. So these aren't powerless people. These are people who have power, and they use their power properly. They don't use force to get their own way. And patience. Best easy description of patience I ever heard. Long-tempered instead of short. (laughs) I was convicted when I ran that. Patience is endurance under affliction. It's continually making allowances for others' weaknesses and other shortcomings. Patience is bearing insult and injury without bitterness, irritation, or complaint. Ladies, just pray over that list and ask the Spirit of God. to to show you where you need to assume some of those attitudes. Humility, meekness, and patience. Paul is saying these are necessary in order to bear with one another in love, in order to tolerate each other because we are not perfect. Um, all these things are done in order to preserve and protect the harmony harmony and unity and love that Christ has created for us so paul 's saying we can keep our family functional when we demonstrate these attitudes, so it begins in your mind with the proper attitude, and then he also encourages us to remember the basis for our unity, remember what it is that we have in common because we are very clearly going to see and recognize what we don 't have in common. so he m- reminds us. Um, Of our legacy and our family history, and the truth is, we are one body, the church, one body. From Ephesians 1:22, he describes the church as the which is Christ's body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So he begins with one body, regardless of our denomination or our nationality or our language or our skin color or our socioeconomic status. The followers of Christ are all one body. And then we are indwelled with God's one Holy Spirit. The moment we believe in Jesus, we experience God's Spirit indwelling us. And we've each been called to one great hope. And that's our eternal hope of being with Jesus forever. And that hope is only satisfied because of the work of one Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we've all placed our faith. And it's one faith that we collectively share. And he talks about one baptism. And most likely he's referencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. in that moment when we all believe and the Holy Spirit indwells us. We have all had that same experience there. And then he says all of these things come to us because of the eternal plan of one God. The creator God who is sovereign over all, who is pervading all, and now he's living in all of us. God made the many and the diverse one body, and it was his plan from the very beginning. And that's the basis of our unity, and that's what we are to protect and maintain. That's our family history. Next, Paul goes on and he moves away from this focus on unity and what we all have in common, and he starts talking about distinctions or differences. He's talking about unique differences among individuals within the church, but these differences aren't differences in our background or our skin color. They're differences in their God-given distinctions that set us apart. So begin reading in verse 7 with me. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, The body of Christ. And what he's saying here is that each individual believer receives a unique gift. And he calls it a gift of grace. We've talked about grace so much as we've studied Galatians and Ephesians. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's God's goodness that we don't earn, that we don't deserve, that we don't work for, and we don't accomplish on our own. It comes to us because of God's mercy and his generosity. And grace is also enabling Grace is God's giving us power to accomplish the work he wants us to do. That's really what we see here. The grace is described as a unique gift given to each one of us. So a gift is a God-given ability to serve God and to serve other Christians. It's a God-given ability. So the same way we might describe a gifted athlete as someone who has a great physical ability, it's the same gifting here. It's something that comes from God that's an ability for us to serve serve each other each gift is individually apportioned they are not all alike each gift is individually assigned to each and every member of the household of God and that's done according to the sovereign will of God and the emphasis here is on specific gifts that contribute to the growth of the church not the individual so once again we get the reminder it's not about you it's about us these are gifts to make all of us grow together It says Jesus is the one who gives these gifts, and he can do that because he is uniquely qualified to do that. He says he's ascending, and he's leading a host of captives and giving good gifts. That's really a military picture, and the picture is of of a victor who's been victorious in battle. And so with all of his followers behind him, he is having a victorious celebration. He's leading the way and he's giving out gifts or he's giving out the spoils of war. That's the picture that's being painted. It describes Jesus as the only one who has authority and power to give those gifts because Jesus is the victor and he has been victorious over death and Satan and sin and hell. And I love that the word used there, he gives good gifts to men. In the original language, you need to know the word meant men and women. So we have this beautiful description of Jesus giving gifts to each person within the church, men and women. Christ ascending, that's describing Christ's ascent to heaven. After he's resurrected from the grave and he appears and walks and talks among all of his followers, they watch his ascent. Acts 1-9 on your verse sheet describes this. And when Jesus had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. It says he also descended. Um, His descent is talking both about his coming down from heaven to earth and taking on human flesh, but more so it's talking about him suffering physical death and being killed and going into the tomb and being separated from God. And it was that action that allowed Jesus to satisfy God's punishment for sin. That was the perfect atoning sacrifice. And when he was resurrected, Jesus became the victor of all times. So we see Christ giving good gifts, filling his church with good things and we know that one day christ will fill the entire universe with the reality of his presence but today christ is filling his church and he's filling us with that reality look at colossians 2 9 on your verse sheet for in christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority so we keep our family functioning, functional by embracing the unique gift that God gives to each one of us. Um, the listing of gifts here is limited. If you want to read a longer list, you can look at Romans 12. Or you can look at 1 Corinthians 12 or 13 or 14 and get a little bigger picture of the variety of gifts. But the gifts listed here in verse 11, these are specific gifts... ...given to specific people, and then those people are given to the church... So it's the gifted people who become Jesus' gift given to the church. I know that language is a little tricky there. And what are the gifts that are given? First, he says the gift of the apostles. He's talking about New Testament apostles here. These were special messengers sent with God's authority. Paul was among this group of men. And if you remember, this was a time in history when God was communicating new revelation. So special messengers would be required to communicate that. Then he talks about the prophets. These are also the New Testament prophets that he's talking about, inspired preachers who would provide both instruction and encouragement and also comfort. And you may remember back in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 when Paul is describing the church as the building. He says we're built on the foundation of the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. These are the New Testament roles that he's talking about here. Then he says evangelists. Those are the people who take the good news of Jesus to unbelievers. And we all know our own salvation experience. First, we heard the gospel We heard it from an evangelist. He talks about shepherds. The same word there would describe pastors. Those are the people who lead and care for the members of the family of God. The same way a shepherd leads and cares for his sheep. And last, teachers. Those who teach the truth of the scriptures. So these people use their gifts to help the members of the church so that every single member of the church is equipped to do ministry. I want to say that again so that every single member of the church is equipped to do ministry. Equipping means to restore something to its proper use. So as the saints, as the members of the household of God, every one of us, our proper use is being ministers. and We are being equipped to minister to each other. That's our purpose, and that's our proper use. These gifted people will help prepare everyone else For works of ministry. So, ladies, we're all equipped. We're all called to build up the body of Christ. It's all of our work. It's not just the work of the people who have offices here and get paychecks for working for the church. All of us are called to be ministers. And we keep our family functional and we keep unity in our family when we embrace that calling. One writer says, ministry is the calling, the privilege, and the responsibility of every single member of the body of Christ. Ministry to each other is required. That's how we are to conduct ourselves in this family. 1 Peter 4.10 says, and as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we are all given a gift so that we can minister within God's church. You know, we live in a very interesting time. We have a number of uh, mature and authentic Christians who have great influence. And there's a message that they continue to communicate that says we should stop blessing the blessed. And those are their words, not mine. They will encourage us to stop spending our energy and our resource and our giftedness serving each other within the church. Instead, we need to serve the homeless and the marginalized. And so to that message, if you read God's description of the New Testament church, when you hear that message, you have to say both yes and no. You have to say, yes, absolutely, we are called to demonstrate neighbor love. We are called to offer help and practical assistance to those outside the family of God, yes. But no, we are not to stop blessing each other. We are not to stop building up the church. Paul makes it very clear, Christ gives us gifts so the body will be built up, so the body will be, grow- will be growing and mature and unified. So, when each one of us, once in the church, uses our gift, then the church actually expresses the fullness of Christ. You know, back in chapter one, we started with God telling, Paul telling us how rich we are, and he lists off those blessings, those great resources we have, and he described this blessing of the church as the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is God's body where his fullness dwells. So we each have to embrace our call to minister and build up the body of Christ so that the church will grow and so that we will represent his fullness. Romans 12, 6 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You know, years ago I was a young mom with two little babies and my marriage was very unhealthy. I was brand new to Fort Worth and I was without a friend or an acquaintance here and it was a difficult season of my life. I had a need. I was desperate for a mom who could advise me about how to be a wife and a mother and just a grown-up. But my own mother had been mentally ill and physically ill for about 10 years and was unable to fill that role in my life. So I prayed desperate prayers for a mentor i wanted an older woman in my life who could coach me and help me and give me wisdom and in spite of my prayers um god just never made that happen in that way he never brought me a person and on one very specific day when i was begging god for a person and a mentor um god spoke to me and he very clearly called me by name and he said stop looking for a person to fill that need in your life i am going to fill it And I had no idea what God meant by that, but I did know I needed to obey God and I needed to stop looking for a person. So I just continued pursuing God in his word and pursuing God in prayer. And without really knowing I was doing it, I also pursued God in his church. And let me tell you what happened. God filled the void in my life. He definitely did it from those individual pursuits, of pursuing him in prayer and Bible study. But in God's church, people with the gift of teaching taught. And I found God. And people with the gift of wisdom, they offered advice. And I found God. And people with the gift of mercy, they listened to me and they prayed for me and they sought me out as a friend and they encouraged me. And then really discerning people looked closely at me and they said, you have a gift and you need to be using it too. And they taught me how to use my gift and it was in the church that I received and I gave and the empty void was filled up. It was totally filled by God through the family of God. And I had this experience of the fullness of Christ in my life. That's how it's supposed to work. When we each use our gift, we express the fullness of Christ, and we serve each other, and we serve God, and it keeps our family functional and unified, and God is glorified. And the opposite is also true. When we don't use our gifts and when we don't encourage others to use their gifts, there is no glory for God, and the growth of the church is stunted. So Paul goes on to tell us how long should we use our gifts. And I laughed when I read this section. Um, When it talks about until we all reach or until we all attain, that's the same language that suggests a traveler arriving at his destination. So have you ever taken a car trip with kids? The question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? (laughs) Here's what he's telling us. He's telling us, here's when you're there. I'll tell you when you've arrived. So begin reading in verse 13. This is how long we should use our gifts, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed through and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, he tells us how long we should use our gifts He says, until we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And by unity of the faith, he means we all believe in the same sound doctrine. We all believe in the gospel, Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. That's the unity of the faith. And then until we all reach this knowledge of the Son of God. And the term knowledge that's used there doesn't simply mean head knowledge. It's that great word that also means intimate personal, experiential knowledge. So what he means there is until we are all uh, living intimately with Christ dwelling in us, uh, lives that are full of expressing obedience and love and service to our King. So the goal here is to keep using our gifts until we all believe fully, until we all live it out every day, bearing fruit in our lives. And next, the goal, he says, until we all become mature, and I love that mature doesn't mean old, it doesn't mean chronological age, it means spiritually mature here, so that means wise and not foolish, mature and not childish, it means steady and stable, it means integrity where your behavior and your thoughts and your attitude matches the faith that you profess. You may not know this, but Christ Chapel's mission statement is directly attached to this idea of maturity of the entire body of Christ. This is on your verse sheet, Colossians 1.28. And we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone... Mature in Christ. It's not about one being mature. It's about everyone in the body being mature. And last, Paul says, until we all reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know, the same way we mark off our children's height on a door frame and watch them grow. This is the idea of the height. The full stature of Christ has been marked out for you. And that is your goal. We should all pursue that. All of Jesus' beautiful qualities demonstrated in us. When the church functions as it ought to, when every person is using their gift, we look like Jesus. Listen to what one pastor said many years ago. God is not trying to produce successful Christian business people who can impress the world with their money and influence. God is not trying to fashion successful church leaders who can influence people with their organizational and administrative skills. He is God is not trying to fashion great orators who can move people with persuasive words. He instead wants to reproduce in his followers the character of his son. His love, his kindness, his compassion, his holiness, his humility, his unselfishness, his servant attitude, his willingness to suffer wrongly, his ability to forgive, and so much more that characterizes his life on earth. That's God's goal for his church. That's his goal for his functional family. And he says, to preserve our unity, we must pursue his goals. And I hope that you noticed in all of those goals, it's always us all. It's always everyone. Again, we get this message. It's not about you. It's about us. It's about God's church together becoming mature. It says, if we don't do these things, then we live as spiritual infants, Uh, Spiritual children described as immature, unstable, unsteady, malleable, easily deceived and swayed. You know, I, I have to notice here when we originally started this passage and he calls us to walk. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we said walking is active. All the activities that lead these children here are passive. Listen to the passive words. They are tossed by waves carried by gust, beguiled and deceived by crafty schemes. The spiritually immature are not actively doing anything. They are passively being led by the wrong things. And I think that's important for us to understand. They're led about by trickery and false teaching. They don't practice discernment, perhaps because they do not have the knowledge of God and from his word that they need. 2 Timothy 3.14 speaks to this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's that equipped word again, and that's a description of maturity. Perhaps the spiritually immature don't know the words of God. We definitely see they can't use discernment to apply the words of God. And because of that, they are passively carried away, perhaps carried away into false teaching. And false teaching always produces disunity and discord. So to prevent that from happening in our functional family, he tells us we must always speak the truth in love. He says our lives are to express truth in everything, and that begins in our thoughts and in our brains. We need to know God's truth. We need to have truth in our thoughts and our understanding. Then we need to translate truth through our mouth, truth in our dealings with each other, truth in all of our living. And in case you're listening to the culture that says we don't know what truth is, I want to remind you we know what truth is. God has told us, Jesus says in John 17:17, 17, 17, he's talking to God and he says, your word is truth. We have it. It's ours right here. And God also tells us that as his family, we have a responsibility to preserve and protect this truth. First Timothy 3.15 on your verse sheet says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Ladies, we have to speak the truth because God has asked us to be the ones to preserve it. We are the church, is the pillar of truth. Then he says, as you live truth in your lives, you must cover it with love. Cover it with love. And we know when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? It was love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Love is the greatest commandment. And we need to follow it here as God's church. We're to speak the truth, but always with love. Always with love. It's the perfect combination. You've probably all experienced truth without love. It's harsh. It's condemning. It's unlovely. And it's unattractive. It does nothing to maintain peace or unity. Instead, it divides. But what about love without truth? Ladies, love without truth is not love at all. Because love without truth lets people stay on the road to destruction and lets them continue on a path that will ultimately lead them to eternal separation from God. And that's not love either. So the church must be the place where love reigns first and because of love, truth is proclaimed. Paul tells us this is how we grow up. This is how we actively walk. The body of Christ is like a human body with unique, gifted parts, all perfectly, skillfully, artistically knitted together, fitted to each other in unity. And when each member lives the truth with love, then the body grows up in love. In this short passage, three times, in love... In love, in love. And if you think through the last three chapters, it begins in love. God's plan from the beginning of time was to have this church. And in love, Christ went to the cross and made this church possible. And in love, we preserve and maintain the beauty and the peace and the unity that exists here. 1 Corinthians 13, one says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on to say, Without love, I am nothing. Without love, I gain nothing. The greatest of these is love. The church has been described as God's miracle of love, where sinful men and holy God are connected in harmony where Jew and Gentile are peacefully brought together and where all these numerous and diverse people are now knitted together, loving each other, serving each other, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, helping each other grow, together moving toward maturity to the full stature of Christ. So when we walk in unity, the world continues to see God's miracle of love in us. That's our calling. Let's pray. God, you're our Father, and we just thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to be in your family, Lord. Um, I pray that each woman here would know the desire that you have to have her knitted into the family with you, Lord. And if she hasn't responded to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, if she hasn't responded with faith and stepped into this peaceful relationship in a family with you, I pray that she would turn now, Lord. I pray that you would help us. You would help us to be humble and meek, and gentle, and patient with each other. I pray that you would help us to serve each other, and use the gifts that you've given us. I pray that you will preserve and protect the unity that Jesus died for us to have, Lord. I pray that you would make those things possible in us, and through us, so that you would be glorified in our church, Lord. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.